Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're on Team Human, where coherence is valued over the crazy. This is where we challenge the faulty logic underlying so many of the systems in which we live and seek to restore some common sense, common understandings, and even the commons itself. These are not given circumstances. These are results of choices we are making about who wins, who loses, and at what cost. It's time to interfere. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, writer and activist Martin Winiecki. In order to go into a future of a society that is really organized around values like trust, solidarity, mutual support, we have to heal the Wetiko disease. Because as long as we are unconsciously driven by fear, there will always be kind of external powers that can make use of our unconscious emotions. Martin, a co-worker at the Tamara Peace Research and Education Center in Portugal, is going to help us explore the real causes and cures of the COVID phenomenon. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. There's a crazy to what's happening right now that most of us are trying to avoid in one way or another. And I think it may be useful, even just for a moment of mental health clarity, to accept the crazy. At least start with what is. We've got a nasty global pandemic in progress. There is a real virus. And there's also a culture, a society driven by a particularly aggressive and debilitating form of capitalism that has rendered us vulnerable to infection. So whether you believe in the disease model of health 
or the more holistic model of vitality, you get to the same place. There's a bug born of sloppy industrial slaughter and markets and global travel and poor standards, or there's a weakened immune system due to industrial conditions and global travel and poor standards and led us all to be sick and crazy. But here we are. The problem, as I see it right now, is that the the arguably still most powerful country in the world, the one that had the idea for the League of Nations and NATO and the World Court and the United Nations and the World Health Organization, right? The United States is totally screwed up. We've got a president who, for all of his good things, and I know a lot of you like Trump and what he does. And besides all the great things about him, he's really not up to this challenge. Politics aside, and his sometimes astute critique of the faux leftist neoliberal elitism notwithstanding, Donald Trump is most likely on the other side of crazy. I mean, the crazy side of crazy. And as always, and really as only a, a, a crazy person or, or a shaman can, he's reflecting our own emotions about contagion and fear and top-down control, suspicion of authorities. It would be great stuff for late-night conspiracy radio or a podcast, particularly if he could articulate his own worldview as well as, well as I could. But... It's working against any ability to mount a global response to this global problem. Instead, by pulling out of the World Health Organization, as as screwed up as the WHO is, by pulling out and, and refusing to cooperate or collaborate with other nations, he's engendered this antagonistic competitiveness between individual nations as each one races to deal with the problem in its own way and hides its result on matters of, I guess, on, on the rationale of pride from everybody else. And so nobody believes anyone else. And nations are now involved in cyber espionage. Everybody is. Even South Korea is busy doing cyber break-ins on, on America to see what's really going on here at our pharmaceutical companies and trying to get our our real health data to see how are things spreading. Meanwhile, U.S. states are competing with one another for supplies. There's no way for the United States to coordinate a response because there's no unifying organizational structure. What we used to call the federal government has decided that the states should do this by themselves. So now the states, or at least some of them, they're working to create some sort of overarching organizational structure to coordinate their collaboration. Basically, the states are building an alternative federal government from the bottom up. But that's hard since only certain state governors believe the virus is real, the way that Trump says in the press conferences while 
other states' governors want to believe that the virus is not real, the way Trump says on Twitter. And Mike Gardner? He believes COVID has been patented by Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci, that the virus was constructed, maybe with some help from the Chinese, to give Bill Gates a reason to vaccinate all of America with a COVID vaccine that's really nanotech surveillance and mind control. And the journalists that could be telling the simple truth, they are themselves undermining their authority to do so. MSNBC and CNN, it used to be the networks I watched, they're still lying about Trump, which makes his true inadequacies and crimes somehow seem less real or less important. Lawrence O'Donnell, he keeps going on about how Trump wants people to ingest Lysol. Trump didn't say people should ingest disinfectant. He really didn't, honestly. He asked the doctors during a press conference what may have been a silly question and at the wrong time. What he wanted to know was if disinfectants work so well on surfaces, is there some way to use them inside a body? Now, admittedly, that's probably a better question to ask in the meeting before the press conference. It's not great for the American audience to hear that early stage, half-baked idea get just kind of blurted out. But for Trump, there is no meeting before the press conference. What you see on TV is the extent of the governance. We're privy to the brainstorming, such as it is. And for his part, Trump's thinking that maybe he's going to happen upon an idea, like using tanning beds to kill the virus with light, that end up naturally allowing his super genius to work. Like a precocious kid, how about this idea? And then, you know, then they imagine that that little idea becomes the thing that saved America. I mean, it comes from a good place. But when our TV news seizes upon this as evidence and and tells a story about it as untrue as their claim that Trump once said he was the chosen one, as some nod to evangelicals, it was really not what he said— that's when they lose all their credibility. So when someone gets mad at the quarantine and suspicious of government overreach, and they go watch Lawrence O'Donnell or Chuck Todd spin their own sarcastic disinformation, they end up utterly blackpilled, right? If not this, then that. And then you just reject everything and go into that dark other crazy. The fact is, we're not going to find coherence on the tube. Yes, we are in the midst of an early extinction event, being led by crazy. And where the opposition to crazy has been corrupted by its own incentive structure into another kind of crazy. Yes, we have to deconstruct the medical and government establishment that has gotten us here and is now applying some perhaps ill-conceived methods of disease containment. But we have to do it without ascribing motives or building out bigger plots. Many of these folks believe they are involved in healthcare. And by that I mean I mean all the pharmaceutical companies and Fauci and Gates, you know, or or they think they're doing economic reform or or helping poor people. It's much more difficult to make the argument that we need to that we're living within a system that devalues humans and nature and vitalism. You know, one has to go really all the way back to Francis Bacon or earlier to root out this mindset that, that came with uh, mechanistic empirical science. 
confronting the medical establishment about this is difficult because it's so embedded in our society. And in some ways, that's the value of a Trump, to call these things into question. But but a Marion Williamson, say, could have done this without all the hate and the insanity. Or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, for that matter, could have done it a heck of a lot less incoherently, less insanely. You know, Trump is questioning the integrity of science in order to steal money from the government and the people and deliver it to his friends, to cronies, right? He is, uh, and I don't usually speak badly about Trump because I'm trying to help people see the logic of what he does, but he also uses the logic, some of which is true, to do criminal activity. He uses the contradictions in Western scientific and logical models to rob and, in some cases, kill, you know, as, as now more people are dying than would need to. And most of the people on social media promoting factual evidence against bad science, they're doing it to supplant it with even less accurate stories uh, about Zionism or Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton's secret labs. I promise you, Bill Gates is not going to inject espionage nanos into children. But increasing the number of vaccines we take could also be a losing game in the long run. Viruses and bacteria, they replicate faster than we can develop new vaccines and antibiotics. Eventually, time runs out on us. But if that's true, then all of us real people from the bottom up, thinking and conspiring together, should also be able to develop new ideas and practices together faster than, than the stilted, fragile forms of government and business, however corrupt and however crazy, can regulate us or stamp us out. Our secret weapon against the crazy is our mass coherence. And coherence, like the rest of being human, is a team sport. We are in this together. I am so happy to bring you coherence in the form of a young, brilliant networker, writer, and activist, Martin Winiecki. He's a co-worker at the Tamara Peace Research and Education Center in Portugal. He's born in Dresden, Germany in 1990. That sounds so young to me. He's been politically engaged since his early youth, which I don't consider over. I read an article he wrote for Cosmos Journal last month called Searching for the Antivirus, COVID-19 as Quantum Phenomenon, and I just had to have him on. This one is a treat. I mean, maybe I guess for background for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, if you could explain something, I guess, about what you feel is relevant about your story and training or education or reading that kind of has brought you to see the world as you do. I grew up in Germany. I became kind of politically conscious quite early in my youth due to different circumstances, the rise of neo-fascism and the part that I grew up in. And so I kind of started out from a very let's say, traditionally leftist critique of capitalism and pretty much looking through a political and economic lens and also realizing the spiritual dead end or meaninglessness of much of the culture that I saw around me, the dullness of this kind of capitalist culture, which in the part where I grew up in, I come from Eastern Germany, was post-socialist people 
in a way embraced capitalism with big enthusiasm initially and Right. I mean, I visited East Germany before the, the end, but afterwards, if there was any place in the world that could argue that it needed growth-based corporate capitalism, it would be East Germany to kind of now catch up with the rest of Europe around it. At least there was a growth argument to be made, but boy, they sure doubled down on that. <laughs> it happened pretty fast. Right. And and people just felt so betrayed. Like the, the, the initial promise of, I mean, blossoming landscapes was the kind of tagline that they were promised this amazing uh, realm of freedom and, and prosperity. And, and people just realized that the thing that the communists had told us under the GDR dictatorship about what capitalism would be, it turned out that this was everything was right, what they were saying us. <laughs> Partly, at least. I mean, I remember the difference in visiting East Germany 10 years later was everything looked the same except there were advertisements up on the tops of all the buildings where they hadn't been before. And the people looked sadder than they were before. It wasn't wealthy, but there was this feeling of uh, of welcome. You know, every little strange little pub I went into, and I was alone, a strange little American writer, and they would bring Schweinebraten to my table and put it down there. I don't even know what I'm eating. <laughs> and the minute that the plate went down on my table in front of me, everyone in the bar, they turned their heads and everyone said, uh, guten appetite. And I'm like, where in the world do they do that? That perfect strangers, as soon as they see a plate go down in front of a stranger, they all wish me to have a good meal. I was, as an American, I was shocked by that, that that sense of hosting that they had, you know, which is gone now, of course. When I was 14 uh, in, the, in the state that I grew up in, a new fascist party got elected into the, like, the state. This initial wake-up moment kind of kicked off, and I just experienced this sudden political awakening and realizing what hides behind this benign or even good-sounding word of globalization it really put me on a kind of quest for meaning and for alternatives. And ultimately this led me to uh, searching for other ways of living, not just resisting, because I also saw that even though activists had a really critical mindset, uh, the activist groups that I was part of didn't exactly embody the alternative that I was looking for. Like it felt like there were the same like interpersonal uh, wars going on, the same kind of uh, fighting and fear I felt actually quite depressed and uh, had suicidal thoughts. And uh, so I, I, I knew I, it needed a radical alternative. And so then I was looking for alternatives. And through magical ways, actually, I, I got to know this project of, of Timera in, uh, in, in southern Portugal, which is a community of now about 200 people, founded originally by Germans and now an international community that kind of started from this anti-capitalist point of view of actually the students' movement in the Western part of Germany in, in the 60s and 70s and realizing that in order to really make a system change, um, we needed to engage into researching a different way of interpersonal uh, social ways of being. So they started out with this idea that we needed to change consciousness, but we couldn't just make this a matter of therapy because we are dealing with a collective uh, phenomenon of um, social alienation fear of loss, depression, like we have, those are social phenomena, not just individual ones. And so we need to create a whole different set of arrangement for how we live together with each other and with nature. And for me, this whole thought realm was fascinating to begin with and seeing how the 
those ideas were applied made me really curious to uh, learn more. And so I came here as a student and yeah, ended up staying here. And now I've been here for something like 13, 14 years. Wow. And then what did you do? Do you sit and and meditate? Do you farm? (laughs) I mean, it looked to me from the pictures, it looked almost like a Esalen or something that except there's more of a, of a residential community there doing sort of intentional living and workshops for guests and some permaculture farming and then everybody's own personal kind of research and development on top of that. Yeah, it's well, it's a lot about building community. So it's a lot about being together and, and researching how do we create uh, trust on a deeper level and also understanding ourselves, like engaging in a, in a larger framework of consciousness work. So we work a lot in in community settings and different group settings. In a way, it's a it's a social microcosm. Yeah, as you said, we have ecological work going on. We have technological research going on on, on decentralized zero carbon technologies. We also have a whole area that is dedicated to children and youth. So we have a different kind of kindergarten and our own school and uh, a space for for, for youth. Uh, we have a space for art. Uh, we have a spiritual um, center. So there is a lot of also uh, particular departments and groups that dedicate themselves to actually researching in all these areas, like what can a trust-based kind of nonviolent regenerative society look like? The, the shared base is, is community and a commitment to consciousness work that is the, the foundation for everyone to co-create um, in a way, a field for a nonviolent society, and then people dedicate themselves in different to different special areas. Hmm. And I guess it's the wrong kind of question to ask. But as a, a person outside, out in New York, hoping for some healing of our civilization, how do you see what you're doing? trickling out or resonating out is it a specific real like pamphlets and books that will come out of there that other people model or is it more kind of generating a field of awareness that moves out and may slowly change just by its existence change the way other systems operate i would say it's both actually but i would say the uh, second part you mentioned about generating a field i think this is actually the more important one even. I know it may sound really airy-fairy, <laughs> esoteric, but I, I do believe that we have strong fields. I mean, Rupert Chadwick spoke about the morphic fields or morphic resonance uh, that are quite uh, fundamental in how they organize collective behavior. And so I believe that uh, the way small communities interact, if they kind of can actually model a profoundly different let's say, matrix or a way of being with each other, that it can really create resonance on a much larger level than just the direct impact we may have through people coming here and learning from us and also through the publications, which are also things that we do. I mean, we have people from all over the world come here. We have many communities that have taken learning from us and that we cooperate with. We are also engaged in um, alliance building with leaders of different activist movements and indigenous communities. So all of this is going on. But ultimately, I think the, the power such a community can have, and in this context, we also refer to it with this term of a healing biotope, true transformative impact of it is really through the level of, of shifting the field. Because in the, in the inner um, of, of a community, you actually find the basic dynamics that you find in humanity. So if you can really transform uh, the pattern of 
fear and anger or of, in a way, the collective trauma that uh, holds humanity hostage, if you can really dissolve it in the complexity of a community, then I think the probability rises that uh, a similar transformation can take place in many pockets of the world where the current social conditions and political conditions may not be as favorable in making such a shift than it is right now in this place. Right. I mean, it's a variation on what uh, they talk about at the Maharishi Institute, you know, that David Lynch supports. The Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to talk about how if a certain number of people are meditating, it doesn't matter that the other ones aren't, that we change the nervous system, the collective nervous system of the planet once a certain number of people are doing it. So, you know, yes, we can try to directly teach other people how to meditate, but simply meditating changes people as well, you know, changes the whole system. Right. I mean, it is kind of a function of this, you could say, a holographic uh, structure of, of, of the universe or uh, also ties into the, to the whole quantum perspective that the part contains uh, the information and energy of the whole. So if you can really go very deep in one spot, on, at least on a latent level, this can have an impact on, on all of the rest or we could certainly hope. I mean, sometimes I call it fractal noia. There's a lot of examples also on the other side of, you know, some millionaire decides that, oh, I don't want to uh, do so much damage anymore. So I'm going to keep most of my money, but now I'm going to hire a Buddhist monk to teach me how to meditate. And I'm going to build a $50,000 meditation room. And I, I <laughs> feel like, well, that's nice, but it's not really enough at that point, you know, that it requires a, I want to send them to Donju and, and have them, you know, work in a, as a, as a waiter in a, in a diner for 10 years before they start to meditate. It sometimes it's a little easy to think that we just, Oh, I'll just make some easy personal changes and not address the world. But by doing it in community, it forces something very different. You know, I could very easily live as an awakened master, if I don't have to have, you know, my wife and child living in my house with me at the same time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, well, two things to that. I mean, one thing is that people always say, yeah, it's so easy to make a personal change. But actually, if you look at what it takes to profoundly transform your consciousness, it profounds a, a radical readiness for like self-knowledge and self-reflection, but also I mean, we live in an interdependent world and um, we are social beings uh, that are highly conditioned by the social, political, economic structures that we live in. And so part of the kind of experimental setup of this community is that we recognize that the spiritual level is always deeply connected with the structure of society around it. You know, like what happens when, when, a, when a person goes through therapy and then is, is kind of released back into the society that kind of caused the exact um, sickness that they were suffering from. Uh, in a way, we need to do both. We need to transform the economic structures, but we also need to kind of work on the consciousness which gives rise or gave rise in the first place and then keeps on perpetuating those exact same structures. And oftentimes... You know, we are very much scattered in different in different pockets. Like we have a political movement that is not really conscious or doesn't really want to integrate the consciousness work. And then we have a consciousness movement which doesn't want to know about the political part. But I think they are really, they're just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And I, I like you saying that because sometimes I feel, 
You know, when I'm with the real Marxist types, I feel like, ah, I'm too soft and spiritual for these people, and they're more rigorous and educated. But then when I'm with the spiritual people, I feel, ah, I'm such a downer academic Marxist, and they're so free and quantum and open. So I really like you saying there's a dynamic tension, but that we have to sort of embrace both paths, this practical, somewhat hard-edged, slightly cold analysis and understanding of the political economy in which we live, but also maintain this softer, more almost instinctual, cosmic understanding of how we're all connected. Right. And I would say there's, an, there's a third element that is also really important to bring to the table, which is the erotic. Like this is uh, an element which you can say, like it's been both excluded from the considerations of of the spiritual, of many people in the spiritual movement and of the political side. And it is it is so much at the at the heart of our notions of society, whether a society will be totalitarian or or very liberal and open. I think it has so much to do with with how we relate to the erotic powers that run through our organism and also whether we are able to to open for the for the powers of love or not and so that is a topic that has kind of drawn a lot of attention in this social experiment because when you look at how do you actually create trust in a community as soon as you start scratching the surface you come to the unresolved issues of love sexuality partnership which people privatize but actually when you look into each of these private cases you see it is it is a political issue because you find almost everywhere the same kind of dynamics. And if I combine them with the spiritual and the political, it's, I start seeing a kind of a picture of a holistic system change. And a Tamara, is it it's kind of a free love, open love situation? Or are there like couples that are married and separate? Uh, I think there's all kinds. It's not so much that we kind of prescribe a certain lifestyle choice. Like it's not like, you have to do polyamory or there are no rules as to what is like the right sexual uh, decision. But it is more about creating um, ways of being together, also ways of meeting, of ritual, of, of how we come together as a community that allows for lovers to um, express their truth and uh, communicate with each other in a way that allows trust between partners to grow. And, and of course, like one core issue that we come to in this is the tension between this intense longing for intimacy and partnership and the other part, which is just as vital and, and a powerful drive, is, is the longing for a free erotic self-expression, which is actually not so, so much about personal relationship in the first place. And these two parts, they really want to come together. And so I think for many people, also in different phases of their lives, it takes different emphasis. And I think the project started very strongly at this point of like breaking all the societal taboos and getting away with this old concept of marriage and couple relationship and really discovering the beauty also of open sexual relations. And now we are really with this topic of how do we combine free sexuality and partnership on a, on a, on a deep level. And actually, when you live in a group where there is real trust because people can actually show what they love and desire to one another where there is no condemnation for that but curiosity and support you come to a level of trust where you see that actually there is no contradiction between those between those two sides 
Yeah, well, it's a hard one in the West, certainly, in, in a Puritan uh, nation like ours. And it's also, it's, a, it's economically revolutionary to break the, uh, <laughs> the consumer unit of the Of course, of it's proven such family. a successful basic social module of capitalism. I know. Oh my gosh, it'd be a real, it'd be a real war. You know, less against the church than against Wall Street, I think. But to the issue at hand, you know, this more organismic understanding of humanity has the downside, I guess, in the age of globalism of pandemic. You know, that pandemic is a way, it's a harsh wake up, but it's also a way, as you're pointing out in your article, how pandemic is a, a shared phenomenon. It wakes us up to the idea that we are uh, one organism fighting off a collective infection. What has been really interesting for me in this, in this context, sometimes I've been so astonished about how dreamlike and surreal this whole situation feels, like starting with growing up in a, in a capitalist world and just thinking there is something so unchangeable and uh, inevitable in a way in, in how this civilization marches forward and just seeing how like quickly everything can come to a standstill and the world has been quite dreamlike in a way and I've been thinking there is this indigenous North American indigenous term for the sickness of the white man Wetiko. This is so interesting in, in the context of what is going on right now. Native American peoples have actually for hundreds of years talked about a mind virus um, in relation to that which the like kind of consciousness and uh, mentality that the white European in invaders have kind of brought uh, to their homelands. Wetiko, uh, in, in, in their understanding, really refers to not just the superficial outer layers of, of their behavior, but they had an understanding of the psychological and spiritual disconnect that underlies the kind of egocentric madness of, of the civilization. So I, I kind of started coming to this um, idea that um, what if this pandemic that we are seeing right now, what if it is actually almost like a psychosomatic simulation and a somatization of uh, an underlying psychospiritual sickness that we have carried and we have carried out and perpetuated for so long but haven't actually been able to recognize because of its collective character, because simply it's, it's so normal that we cannot recognize that it's a disease anymore. Right. I mean, I've spoken about Wetiko a lot to people as well. I mean, for me, the interesting thing about it was that the Native Americans didn't see us as intrinsically evil. You know, they didn't blame us for what we were doing as white Westerners. They assumed, well, people wouldn't do this normally. They must be sick. Exactly. <laughs> That's so, it's such a generous uh, perspective about us. But yeah, that we have this sort of psycho-spiritual disease. And of course, we could understand, you know, COVID-19 if the bug itself is not psychospiritual, at least the opportunity was psychospiritual. The collective immune weakness, both practically speaking, and that we have this these global supply chains, high stress, these wet markets that are really a result of urbanization in China, not some traditional practice. You know, that's capitalism. You know, it's the darkest sides of capitalism or all this uh, unnecessary global travel. 
that of course we're going to be more vulnerable to you know a simple bat virus than we might have been 50 or 100 years ago before before all this so there is both you know we reap what we sow eventually even just you know wetico which we could understand as western capitalism for most of its features that in itself made us vulnerable to this and less resilient you know less capable of doing anything about it but when i'm reading your piece you know you took us back to the 1400s i guess and the observation which i never knew that young people without mothers were more likely to get the plague that right that that children that were separated from their parents ended up being the ones that, that spawned the plague. And where did that, where was that from? Was that from Franz uh, Rengli? Yeah, exactly. So there, there, you might have not heard about it because the book uh, was only published in German to my knowledge. But there was a, or did there, he's actually still alive, a Swiss uh, psychologist called uh, Franz Rengli, who wrote this fascinating book with the, with the interesting title, Self-Destruction Due to Abandonment, where he kind of laid out that in the, century prior to the uh, outbreak of the Great Plague, um, the Catholic Church started to advise mothers to change their behavior, like to, to the way how they would relate to their young children after they were being born. Um, and so they, they, they kind of recommended them like really a strict form of separation. And, and he said that this caused such a collective trauma um, of, a, like a prim- of, of a deep primal um, abandonment that it kind of weakened their immune system to a point where they would be much more vulnerable to this kind of uh, infectious disease. And I mean, to me, it also makes sense from a like more holistic viewpoint of seeing disease not only as the as the consequence of a of some kind of material trigger, being be it a virus, a bacterium, a poison, or whatever, but actually often also being the the kind of reflection of some kind of psychological or spiritual disbalance. And then when you have that at a collective level, uh, at least if you follow this kind of thought line, it would seem kind of logical that there is a topic or a collective conflict or whatever that um, kind of is prevalent in, the, in, in this whole collective of society and that this is uh, kind of underlying the resonance that um, an infection has in, in spreading on such a wide, widespread scale. It's interesting because I've thought about that too, that part of what made us vulnerable in some ways is is our media and technology, that we, rather than being with our wives and children or groups or whatever we have, you know, we're sitting uh, relatively individually watching nightmares on Netflix and Walking Dead and, you know, just horrific, horrific narratives on TV or trying to connect to people through screens through phone screens and computer screens and you know part of our brain is thinking that we're connected but our body and soul realizes there's no prana you know <laughs> moving back and forth i guess on a quantum level you know love is love and it doesn't matter how far they are but there's definitely a flavor well certainly on a body level an internet Skype embrace doesn't do what a real one does, that we've kind of starved ourselves, yet fed ourselves all these calories. So it feels like a similar thing to, you know, not having your mother with you, not having humanity with you has got to starve the organism on some level. Right. And I, I think I want to kind of take it back to the Wetico, which yeah, as, as you said, like the, that there was no judgment uh, around uh, the, 
the vetical behavior, but there was really this recognition that something is spiritually sick in Western culture. And, and what vetico really is, is, I mean, it literally means cannibalism, but it is this psycho-spiritual uh, state of, a, of an individual who perceives him or herself as being isolated from the world around. So uh, separate from community, from trust, from, from acceptance and therefore kind of has to like survive by competing and uh, defeating exploiting other beings so there is a there is a sense of inability to connect with with life energy in your own self and therefore you have to live from the exploitation of other beings life energy and when you look at uh, what is happening now with with covid-19 i think there is a there is a, such an interesting phenomenon where you see, in a way, this uh, this underlying infection. If you just kind of follow this thought line for a moment as a possibility, you you see how this underlying condition is both getting exaggerated, like where it really gets gets reinforced as a response to this crisis, even stronger. I mean, you know, take social distancing. It's it's funny that people are now talking about social distancing and isolation, but. When you look at the conditions of this kind of capitalist and neoliberal society, I mean, we've had a program of social distancing and isolation going on for decades and increasing the level of social atomization, where on a social level, just society breaks down, there's ever more loneliness, ever more isolation. So we, so we are seeing the kind of phenomena that have anyways been going on are being exaggerated now to a level where we can understand how surreal and mad actually many of the things were that we considered as normal. But I also think that at the same time, there is vertical uh, behaviors are also breaking down, like the levels of, you know, groups organizing mutual aid, solidarity, um, where people help feeding each other. Like all of this is also a sign that maybe something is, is like people are also awakening from this, from, from this um, numbness of isolation. Right. I mean, from a policy perspective, it's difficult. In the U.S., we have the the well-meaning leftist scientists saying we should continue to socially isolate. And the well-meaning, I would think, the well-meaning right-wing, kind of more faith-based Norman Vincent Peale you know, side of things, thinking that we just have to have faith and go out and be strong and not uh, repress ourselves through continued isolation. And it's tricky. And, and in some sense, both are right. You know, that the more we isolate from one another, even if it's with good intent, the weaker and sadder and more depressed and more vulnerable we all make ourselves. Yet, if we're just going to go out in public and go to, uh, you know, ball games, we're all going to catch the COVID. So in, in some ways, I feel like we need to take a, um, it's funny, my, my chiropractor always used to talk about this. He would say, well, there's this time, there's next time, and there's the meantime. So, you know, right now we are in crisis. It's like, okay, the leg is broken. It has to be set. And we have to do some icky things in order to get well right now. But then in the meantime, we should be able to implement some social and economic behaviors and policies that make us less vulnerable as the next crisis hits. Definitely. It's such a volatile uh, moment now, such a moment of possibility. Uh, but also, we have such a moment of transformation now, which could go either way. So I think it is, 
people ha have to kind of follow that which secu which uh, secures safety for them right now. So so I don't so I also don't just propagate continuing as normal. But I also think that there are so many different levels <laughs> here. I also think that on a on an individual level, there's also this point of you know the studies that have been carried out and and shown that how much loneliness and isolation and also panic fear can actually you know lower and and weaken your immune immune system. I'm also not too sure of the you know of the very materialistic argument, and I'm also suspicious about it uh, because seeing of how easily this kind of health security measures fit perfectly to an agenda of governments that seek more top-down control and the dismantling of liber civil liberties. Right. You talk about that, how, how you know, Willem Reich in Mass Psychology of Fascism wrote about the dynamics, you know, how a fascist regime wants to conjure up fear around every corner. And then you say right in the piece, you say, after 9-11, we were told that our enemy was the Muslim world. Now the enemy is invisible and might await us at every door handle or creep into us as we kiss, hug, or even breathe. The more extravagant the neurotic cinema that's playing in our minds, the easier it is for external powers to control and use us for their interests. That's scary then. Then you think, okay, that the response should be, I'm just going to go out and kiss. I mean, a part of me just wants to lick people. I want to go on the subway and lick people. You know, it's almost a counterphobic, but there's a, a healthy urge in that, even though it might likely kill me. It's partly because I understand that these limits are undermining another aspect of, of my vitality. Right. I'm, I'm not sure I would, uh, I would suggest doing that, even though I, I find this response in you quite likable. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say that it is more about becoming conscious of like what is actually coming up in terms of subconscious material right now. Because this is what is driving many of these mass psychological dynamics that Wilhelm Reich spoke about. So when you have a collective of people that is all in this activated state of fear and they are not conscious about it, that it's something in them which is triggered, but they say, oh, it's, it's the Russians, it's the Jews, it's um, uh, the Muslims, as we were told after 9-11, or now they think it is COVID, while actually what is, what is triggered within us is there is a narrative of a, of, a, of a danger which triggers things that are actually completely unrelated to the pandemic itself. And then this stuff, this emotional material that is rising uh, can then be kind of manufactured into the mass consent to a massive restriction of democratic basic rights. And so all of these things, which we have been seeing, I mean, 9-11 is it's a perfect and very sad example of that, how under a state of, of kind of collective shock, and Naomi Klein talks about this, you can just kind of impose these drastic uh, measures uh, of authoritarian control or of, of kind of capitalist exploitation, which under normal circumstances you could never impose because people would be thinking rationally. I was on a panel with some people and they were saying, um, oh, we should look to the example of 9-11 to see how can our society recover from COVID. And I said, oh my gosh, I certainly hope not, because I don't think we did recover from 9-11. In some ways, this is just, this is an example of not having recovered from 9-11. It's not the next thing. It's a continuation of that thing. Right. Because what happens if you actually, if you kind of just keep on stimulating and activating this kind of traumatic mass dynamic, you perpetuate and increase the trauma. So like the, the response is just 
you know, it's, it's just going to get worse. Almost like you have these kind of cycles of, of kind of recurring totalitarian responses and uh, violence that, that is being triggered and all of this. I mean, um, and at the same time, all of these, I think this is also very important to point out that all of these crisis, crisis moments, something also breaks open in the veil of normality. And thereby, there is also a possibility of becoming conscious of the program that we have just been stuck in thoughtlessly, followed thoughtlessly, the way how our kind of neurotic and pathological societal conditionings are being played out at such an exaggerated uh, level, there is also a moment for many people to awaken from it at the same time. Absolutely. It's like, uh, um, I can't help but thinking about it almost as a bad trip, you know, that we've concretized these things. We've taken all of our fear-based hallucinations and all of our fear of intimacy and greed and capital and everything, and we've manifested it now. So the monster, you know, it's like, there it is. We've resurrected the thing. In a sense, though, you know, as my dear friend, the late Genesis Peorg used to say, the only good trip is a bad trip, you know, so because at least that's when that's when you learn. And, you know, you call it, it's funny, it reminded me of, of QAnon, you call it the great unveiling, you know, which QAnon would call the great awakening, you know, it's their, their motto, really, that this moment is our great awakening. So the great unveiling, in a sense, is the acceptance, okay, we are having a bad trip now. But whenever, as any experienced psychedelic person realizes, whenever you are having a bad trip, it's like, oh my gosh, here's my learning opportunity. I'm now going to get to see the the various ways that I'm exaggerating or distorting experience, and I'll be able to, uh, you know, once I'm down, I'm going to be able to now correct for these things as I move forward. So right. you, you list some of these sort of things that got unveiled. I mean, in the first, I guess the most obvious was the ecological unveiling. I mean, when you take psychedelics and you have a bad trip, there is an awareness that at least when you come down from it, um, that you or your subconscious or part of your consciousness has kind of manifested this into being. Like there is, there is an understanding, at least this is where the, where the gift of such a situation lies in, just like in a, in a nightmare that you have. It's, it's extremely frightening what happens. And at some point you become lucid. At some point you realize, oh, like I'm dreaming. And in this moment, there is, there is the possibility of, of transforming the situation and there is a possibility of learning. And it is almost, yeah, it is really a gift, actually, because through the, the bad trip or the nightmare, something that was hidden, covered up, unseen in the subconscious, suddenly um, shows itself in a way that uh, we can start to have a kind of conscious dialogue with it. So, I mean, Carl Jung spoke about these things a lot, but, but I think in many ways what is happening in the world, um, yeah, is, is, an, is a reflection of exactly this process where also on a collective level, we kind of dream those things into, into existence. But to the degree that we are unconscious of it, it, it is like we continue to, to manifest bad trips or nightmares because we, are, uh, we live in this kind of Cartesian box of separating our subjective experience and thoughts from the supposedly objective world out there, which is not connected to what we are doing in our consciousness and our thinking. 
and, and the hope, of course, is that then, you know, when we when we do come down or when we wake up the next morning, you know, we can you know, slowly but surely make the adjustments. You know, then we can we're more aware of how we're contributing to these. Well, in this case, to the ecological and economic and and social obfuscations and obstacles that have disconnected us from the larger organism. I think we are we are already seeing this. I mean, I think. Uh, and staying also in this analogy of, of a bad trip, I think one of the obvious first uh, steps of correction in this regard is, is also just a sense of modesty. And I think many people are seeing this, like there is such an arrogance in this kind of, you know, globalized capitalist world of, you know, we think we can master everything with technology, we can fix any problem. You know, we're at the crown of evolution. And now there is this tiny little bug that comes and brings everything everything to a standstill. And there's suddenly just this realization of, wow, we're part of, of such a much greater web of life and our, our existence depends on so many more things that uh, we don't even know anything about. Right. We don't even still don't even really know. I, the virus is not alive, I don't think. I think it's just a piece of code with protein wrapped around it. You know, it's, a, it's an artifact. It's genetic, but, but it's not a thing. It's not like a bug even. It's not even a bacterium. It's just a it's just a piece of tricky code, you know? <laughs> right. And still, I mean, and still, like when you, fo for example, follow this probable explanation of even of the, of the ecolo ecological origin of, of, of this uh, virus, you know, ecologists have made this argument that actually this is nothing that would happen just naturally, that, that wild animals would contract people. But it is always the result of people actually invading and destroying natural ecosystems and uh, epidemiologists now warning us that if we want to secure our health as humanity, we cannot do it independently from protecting the health of the, the natural world. So I think this is, yeah, maybe the great unveiling is a bit too biblical and dramatic a title, but I actually feel there is a, there is a big unveiling happening. Or for example, also on the economic level, I mean, just this is incredible right now how like with the federal reserve pumping a trillion dollar um lending it to big banks on a daily basis now to just kind of keep the e economy running and suddenly people are are starting to think like what was the nature of money uh, to begin with you know people are suddenly realizing it's just like a virtual construction it's just like an agreement that just has reality to the extent that we consent to it and play along and they're becoming aware that the entire economy that we've been using to get ourselves the goods and services we need was hijacked by financial markets that are extracting the 90% of the value of our markets are going to these very wealthy, lazy people, you know, who own those markets. And so much less effort and work is actually required to get every person on the planet the food and shelter and medical care and comfort and education that they need. You know, if we don't rob 90% of the value, um, all of a sudden there's such uh, so much more bounty. You know, so while we're looking at oh my gosh, the economy is under such great threat. Well, which economy is under such great threat? The one where nobody, where the people who don't work get all the money, well, that one's under threat. But the real one? And that's in some reason why, in the States anyway, I feel like the, the Bernie people and the Trump people should have always been on the same side. You know, it's basically, that's working class America realizing with different models that they've both been getting shafted by this globalized economy. And this is what a lot of us have woken up to is, 
now that the economy is crashing and there's uh, no one working or whatever, you know, you start to think about what do I actually need to survive and to have a, a happy life? I need the food. I need the shelter. I need some some heating oil. But most of this stuff I don't need. I don't need all my streaming media subscriptions and microchips and uh, automobiles. And, you know, it's really not that much. I need a good local community supported agriculture farm near here. I need some biodiesel or petrol and um, enough materials to keep my family warm under a roof. What else is there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe that this moment, and especially also with the collapse of the fossil fuel industry that we are seeing right now, like there is, there is a real opportunity for kind of profound systemic changes at this point as people kind of wake up to the to the insanity of a very virtual economy and, and realizing, as you describe, like, there, there is an awakening to what are actual values. And so there is also already now, like we see this movement of localization gaining so much steam. It is very interesting also that those are changes that we have known for a long time to be necessary and urgent in response to the climate crisis, but haven't been able to kind of find the collective decision to engage in them exactly. And now the COVID-19 crisis gives us, it's a kick in the ass collectively, giving us another opportunity for doing this kind of systemic change that is necessary. And I believe that a lot will depend on the capacity of people to organize themselves on local and regional levels to decentralize uh, water, food, energy supply, it also has a lot to do with uh, the restoration of ecosystems because in many places, landscapes have been degraded to a point where it is also hard to kind of sustain ourselves locally. But this is a great opportunity of for people to root themselves in, I mean, you could say re-indigenizing, even though this is a kind of fashion word, but there is a real opportunity to for people to root and fall in love with the place that they live in and build relationship with the beings that live there. Uh, and restore natural environments. And I believe that, I don't think that globalization will just be reversed. I think we will we will continue to have the sense of, of, a, of a global exchange of, of information and I guess also travel in some way, but we'll see how this <laughs> will continue. But certainly there will be a much stronger uh, routing in in, in, in these local cycles, um, and we will we will realize what a key response this is also to the ecological crisis. Because yeah, we can cut flying, but then when we see how much, for example, fossil fuels are involved in a globalized food system, it is just absurd. It is it is unnecessary. It is it is just being kept up for the profit of uh, a handful of corporations. The exact same foods are being shipped in opposite directions, crossing paths over the oceans or, <laughs> or in the sky. Do you know what I mean? It's a, We catch shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico and ship it all the way to Thailand and Vietnam where it's deshelled, and then it's shipped all the way back to the United States where it's consumed in restaurants. So it's like, who, who exactly is that, is that serving of all, that, all this motion of matter uh, across the planet? I'm interested in the kind of two scenarios that you paint at the end of the, your essay, and we're all wondering which direction are we going to go in or both? 
Are we going to use COVID transmission to install even greater levels of surveillance and control the way we did after 9-11? It was almost as if the 9-11 catastrophe became the excuse to turn the internet into a, a surveillance platform and, you know, and restrict motion and do whatever it is that, that uh, the leaders of a Wetico civilization do to lock down their control? Or does this awakening or unveiling lead us to slowly, incrementally enhance and build out, you know, these little trials we're doing now of mutual aid and community awareness and food co-ops and local agriculture? And they're finally talking seriously about universal basic income. How do we, how do we uh, push toward those sorts of initiatives? What makes that more probable as we contend with and emerge from this crisis? I think it's a complexity of all kinds of different things. First of all, I think we have to be extremely vigilant about all the tough laws and measures that are being proposed to us now, especially by authoritarian governments as an alleged necessity in response to dealing with this with this crisis. It is, first of all, very important to be extremely vigilant and to retain our right to protest and to to stand up to these kinds of measures with every step that that surveillance is is increased and that human rights are dismantled it will be much harder to take that back later so this is this is the first thing the second thing is i believe it is very important now to have conversation and to exchange information between people around the world as to what are alternatives to the to the dominant system so we we need a kind of exchange to create a, a possible global picture of of an alternative of of a, of, a, of a different system so i believe that you know capitalism is is almost dead uh, it is it is kind of it is kind of tumbling in you know towards its death but what keeps capitalism alive is that people have internalized this mantra of Margaret Thatcher, that there is no alternative. And so I think to the degree that we can awaken our imagination to what else is possible, we can create different realities. Uh, a third thing that I would say is it is necessary, and there I come back to the beginning where we spoke about fields, in order to go into a future of a um, society that is really organized around values like trust, solidarity, mutual support, we have to heal the Wetico disease. Because as long as we are unconsciously driven by fear, there will always be kind of external powers that can make use of our unconscious emotions. And sadly, so many revolutions that have started out with the most beautiful intents have at some point been kind of co-opted or, or destroyed externally because of these internal structures and so I think one point that is really important in this is that people come together in creating places where they enter into a radical uh, shared experimentation and consciousness research as to how to dissolve this kind of structure and uh, kind of model in, in small places the kind of new society that we want to see. I think, I think it, it has to, the knowledge and the solutions that is around in the world has to come together to a system in the first places because if you want to replace a system, you cannot just do it by by protests and partial changes. You need to confront it with a new system. So that is 
a lot what the kind of political thinking around the healing biotopes plan that came out of this community of Tamara is about. I think it is very important that the many initiatives that we have now for mutual aid, for neighborhood help, for localization, that they kind of continue and that they um, develop into something like watershed communities or bioregional councils so that the people start to reorganize and um, I think also prepare for the probable collapse of the financial systems, of, of food supply systems. So there is, uh, I think this level of, of our basic material supply is really important. I think that regions that do organize in this way will be much more able and resilient in going through the kind of disruptions that we will see actually with or without COVID. I mean, if it's not with COVID, it will be for the climate crisis. Maybe as a last point, I would say there is something of a spiritual transformation that wants to happen. I mean, there is... Like when I look into the sky and I I'm, I feel this gratefulness in my heart about how I don't see any planes and how like this, the, the sky is really blue again and how there is this um, almost reawakening of vitality in, in nature because there is this break. Like there is such a calling from the earth that we kind of stop out of the step out of the blindness of this anthropocentric, limitation uh, that we have put ourselves in this kind of cage of self-importance of, of making us the center stage of, of the world and there is a humbling that takes also place in this moment of realizing actually you know we we might want a solution right away we might want to know the path and lead everyone in this direction but then i think there is a deeper sense of guidance and orientation as to what we can do and have to do in this moment that comes from kind of reorienting ourselves in ways that many indigenous cultures have cultivated for so many thousands of years of really being earth-centered, of putting the community of life and not one particular species and its thriving and survival at center stage. Well, thank you. I think that the mentors at Tamara that you've uh, been working with are be very proud to to hear you uh, sharing these insights with the world at large. You know, they're they're important. But thanks, thanks so much for what you're doing and giving us both hope and stewardship in this, you know, time of crisis, but hopefully also building awareness and, and opening opportunities. Very grateful for your invitation to this podcast and looking forward to continuing this exchange and exploration. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Martin Winiecki of the Tamara Peace Research and Education Center in Portugal. You can find out more about him at tamara.org. Find out more about him and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can join listener supporters like Alex Muir, Victor Friedman, Colette St. John, and Kevin Armstrong. Get cool stuff, invited to live events when we have them again, and our enduring love. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.